Hope it's good. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to I Took a Right Turn. We are so glad to be here with you. I am Rosalie. And I'm Robert. And we're going to just share some things with you today. We're going to uh, obviously share a song, a um, song written by my husband, Robert. He's also going to read a chapter from his book. What chapter are we on? We're on chapter 18. Chapter 18. <laughs> oh my gosh. And um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about a scripture. And so, and before we get into all of that, though, I do want to say something about a foundation that my sister has formed for my sister who passed. We have a, our youngest sister who passed three years ago with breast cancer. And uh, my sister, her name was Mary Kay. And my other sister, Joanne, uh, was trying to find something to make her comfortable and cozy. And so she picked up these um, cashmere shawl kind of like things. And I, I don't know if it's a shawl. I don't know what you, we don't even know what to call it. But anyway, it slips over your head and uh, it's it comforting and it's warming and it doesn't get any in any of the way of any of the boards or anything that you might be hooked up. And it comes in all different colors. And after she gave that Mary Kay, before she passed, Mary Kay said, wouldn't it be nice if we could give one of So we have formed a foundation that does not do research. We have formed a foundation to give one of these shawls every woman going through breast And this is Breast Cancer Month, so I would be We just wanted to let you know about it. And it is a uh, non-profit foundation. Nobody's, nobody's getting any salaries or taking anything it's, out of it. Everything that is donated to it. It's called Made Kindly. Yes. And, and it... Uh, there for people to know and somebody said one time they said that the, the cashmere shawl or whatever is like a warm hug yeah. and we just want to see if yeah. we could you know somehow build this up and give one to every every woman who's going through this when they're doing their chemo and all that they can they can have a nice warm hug we also received a comment lately why cashmere it's so expensive response is, why not cashmere just give these ladies something to, that they can really cuddle into that really for them no it's just something special Hi. so if you would like to donate, you could go to madekindly.org. That's madekindly.org. You'll find all the information out there. You'll find the story. Everything. And we just want to let you know about it. And we think it's a great cause and a great thing to do. We want to, you know, honor Mary Kay's wish. And we want to see every woman receive that warm hug. And today, we're going to go into a scripture where, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the world today. You know, what's going on in the Mideast has a lot of people going, is this the end times? You think you think the end times are starting? And there's an interesting thing. When this happened, when Hamas attacked Israel in such a, a brutal and savage way, I, I thought in my mind, why would they possibly do something that was like sticking their thumb in Israel's eye and just doing things so brutally, so savagely, that it was going to result in nothing but the complete destruction of them and their stronghold there in Gaza. Why would they commit suicide? A suicide bomber, you know, there's many reasons why they do it. Sometimes they're almost forced into it. But why would an entire organization commit suicide? Well, the thought came to me, and it's very much related to the, the book that we're reading, America's Trojan War. And in that book, the terrorists who attack Washington 
Washington and attack America actually say that they're doing it. And and in the book, they, they target hospitals and they target schools and they set up rape rooms to rape all these women they had captured and kill children and all kinds of things. And they even say, we're doing this to enrage the crusaders so that they will invade the Middle East because Muslim eschatology, the theology of the end time, believes that there won't be a battle at Armageddon like Christians believe. They believe there's going to be a huge battle at the end of time outside of Damascus where Muslim armies will be gathered and all the unbelievers will be attacking them. And as the unbelievers are about to overwhelm the Muslims, Muhammad and Jesus, they believe, will come back and destroy all of the unbelievers. That is what they believe. And it is my thought, and it is even expressed by the people in the America's Trojan War, everything they're doing is only for the reason to get that battle to happen. They're trying to, to spur on, ignite, initiate the end times. And you have to remember, Hamas, Hezbollah, and all the, the believers there in Iran are members of this end time uh, cult or end time sect of the Muslims. They believe this is what's going to happen. They're looking forward to this battle at the end of time. And so many people are thinking of the end times and who knows, maybe Hamas was thinking of the end times. But we don't really talk about politics or even current events on here much. But what we're looking at today, the changing of the seasons. And of course, we're thinking about that. The song's been around with us for a while, but the changing of the seasons is going on. The trees are changing, you know. Even tomorrow, Rosalie and I are taking a little trip to go look at the colors. You know, the changing of the seasons is here. And wanted to relate all that to this. You turn to Acts chapter 1, and you start at verse 6. It says, when they were together for the last time. For the last time. Now think of this. Jesus died. He rose from the dead. And then he came back, you know, to his disciples and his apostles and all these. And he stayed with them for 40 days. And it wasn't just them. There's Paul even mentions at one point, he appeared to over 500 people at once. And when the apostles were writing their letters and that, they would say like, well, those witnesses are still alive. Go check it. They saw Jesus after he rose from the dead too. You know, so they're together for the very last time, 40 days after the, the crucifixion. They've been with him going in and out and learning from him. They've been with him. They're saved now because Jesus Jesus had been crucified and, and raised up. Okay, but wait a minute. The only one who knew it was the very last time was Jesus. That's right. But he was walking out. He knew it was the last right. time. Right, they did. We, we, we don't know if they did or not. How were they? I don't know. You know, but, you know, maybe he told them before they went out there, I'm going to I'm going to rise into heaven now. We don't know, but it does say, and this is Luke writing this and that, when they were together for the last time, they asked, Master, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Is this the time? And that was Jewish eschatology at the time. They believed the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to restore Israel to be the, the main kingdom on earth. That's what they meant by that. And so they're asking, okay, is this the end times? Are you going to restore the, the kingdom now? Is this it? And Jesus told them, he says, you don't get to know the time. Now, there's another place in Matthew when he's out with these same disciples and that, and they're all telling him, oh, look at the temple. How great it is. How wonderful it is. And he goes into a soliloquy about, well, there's coming a time when there won't be one stone left upon another stone. Though. The whole place is going to be destroyed. And he talks about the end times there. And and the disciples then say, well, are you going to do that now? And he says, well, you don't get to know the time. At that point, he even says, even I, even Jesus doesn't know the time, only the Father. So here he's reiterating that. He says, you don't get to know the time. Timing is in the Father's, is the Father's business. What you'll get is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all over Judea, Samaria, and even to the the ends of the world. 
this. These were his last words. Now, there's a place in Luke where it says, if your child asks you for an egg, you don't give them a plate with a snake on it. Even we, being evil, know not to do that. Says, and how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Remember, John says, I come baptizing with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. And here Jesus is saying, now, don't do anything. Okay, I'm leaving, but don't you do anything until you receive the Holy Spirit. And now, after he left, what did the apostles and the disciples do? They were hiding out in the upper room, 150 of them. They were praying, yes, they were praying and seeking the Lord, but they were hiding out. They were afraid they were going to get arrested and crucified too. They didn't go out. Sure. But then the Holy Spirit came. And in, in the Bible it talks about cloven tongues of fire appearing over their heads. You know, and they're speaking in tongues. And they don't care anymore about getting arrested. They go out on the balcony and proclaim the gospel to everybody. And after that, throughout the book of Acts, I mean, they're preaching the gospel everywhere they go. They don't care. The Jews even grab them and say, we're going to beat you with rods. And they do beat them. They say, if you speak this name anymore, we'll kill you. And they kept doing it. And then they killed some of them. And they said, if you keep doing it, we're going to kill more. And they kept preaching because they had received the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, and here we are looking, and people are talking, is it the end times? Is it the end times? Since we can't know, it's impossible for us to know when the end times is. Every moment we spend wondering about it or speaking about it, when are the end times? We're wasting time that we could be witnessing. We're called to be witnesses we are not called to know when the end times are. But he tells us, don't even try to witness until you have received the Holy Spirit. And that's the thrust of this whole teaching today. Don't worry about what's going on in the Mideast. Don't worry about what's happening. Don't, don't be afraid, oh, the end is coming. Just be ready. Be ready. Be ready. And the way you become ready is to receive the Holy Spirit. And if you have not received the Holy Spirit, ask him, how much more will our Father, who is in heaven, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Amen. Amen. Okay. So now we're going to... Oh, we're going to sing a song. <laughs> we're going to sing a song sing now. That's what we're going to do. So and here. it's all about the changing, changing of seasons. Here we go. Yeah. 
tonight. I hope you enjoyed the song. It seems very appropriate for this time of year, or so we thought, because I don't know about where you are, but we have leaves falling off our trees right now. But I also wanted to say one thing about the fact that it's a changing in season. It's also, I think, many times a change for us individually, personally, spiritual changing. So grab hold of it and enjoy it. Amen. Now we're going to read a chapter, chapter 18 from America's Trojan War, which, as I've told you before, is the first book in a five-book series but a dystopian future. It's actually about a civil war in modern America between 2016 and 2024. And like I said, as I was talking about the scripture, there's a lot of things in there that uh, fit into what's going on. I've had people tell me many times at book signings, they say, I'm just trying to finish it before it all comes true. I've had people tell me that over and over and over again. And I wrote this several years ago now. You know, and so it's available at Amazon.com. All you have to do is put in America's Trojan War and Dr. Robert Owens in the search bar. Click it, you know, bring my, my book up and click on my name where you see it and it'll take you to my author's page where you can buy all of my books in either softback or Kindle. One click right there. So hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Chapter 18, The Sword of Islam. As soon as the deafening roar of the Phase 4 salvo had stopped reverberating off the walls of the director's office in Walter Reed, Abdal al-Shalub, the first governor of the ISIS province of America, said to his main communications officer, Farouk al-Bassar, Open all channels. Abdal knew there was no reason to shield their communication using game stations and low-tech walkie-talkies anymore, and pipe the caliph's incoming announcement. Also tell all four radio stations to carry the, the announcements too. Yes, sir, Farouk snapped, as he then spoke into the headphone he was wearing which synced him up to all his communications officers. He was happy to follow his orders. Anxiously awaiting the great announcement, Abdel knew that since there was now pushback at all locations in D.C. and in the four towns they had seized, there was no longer any reason for any attempt at secrecy. Besides, he also knew that there weren't many who would understand their open communications in Arabic. From now on, it was just a matter of holding out and killing as many of the unbelievers as possible. As everyone in the room waited to hear from their leader, reports began coming in about massive troop movements heading toward Walter Reed and of smaller attacks around the perimeters of the other three hospitals. The fact that D.C. was a self-disarmed city had figured into the calculations of how long they could hold out and of how strong any civilian resistance would be. They knew that unlike the world they came from, where every family had AK-47s and most had much more, America's capital had long been a gun-free zone. Command every strike force to fire 100 rounds from every Bradley into the surrounding neighborhoods and command strike force 4 to fire two volleys from the Abrams they have facing east into Arlington National Cemetery. That should enrage the unbelievers enough to attack without caution into our guns. Yes, sir, Adan Kaib, his second-in-command, responded, immediately moving to make it so. Just then, the speakers overhead crackled into life as a long-awaited announcement 
that had been planned all along to come after stage four raised the curtain on what they all believed would be the last act in their suicide mission. On all four of the captured radio stations, on every radio station throughout their territories, and supposedly as news coverage on the radio and TV networks of Al Jazeera and Arabic, Caliph Abdul Bakar al-Baghdadi spoke to his devoted followers as well as to all Muslims within the sound of his voice. Greetings, believers. Today is a day all of us have waited for our whole lives. This is a moment in history that generations of believers have long dreamed of. Today, May 10th, 2016, I, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, Caliph of the Land of Believers, by grace of Allah, announced that I am in possession of Zalbikar, the sword of al-Bin Abi Talib, given to him by Muhammad at the Battle of Ud. This blessed weapon was found by my warriors. Today I draw it from its sheath and declare unending jihad against the unbelievers until the last cursed boot have left the land of the believers, until the last of the crusaders have been defeated and hide shivering with fear. With this holy sword held high, I call upon all believers, Sunni and Shia, to set aside our differences and unite to defeat the Crusaders. We have more in common between us and we have differences separating us. The unbelievers exploit our disunity to deprive us of victory, oppress our lands, kill our children, and dishonor our women. I call upon the Shia to leave your worship of the descendants of Ali Abin Ibn Talib and the Al-Bahad Bahad. Let us join together and usher in the blessed reign of the Mahdi. I call upon all believers in the Islamic State province of America. Rise up if you cannot strike against the government. Kill your neighbors. Attack anywhere you can. Start fires. Do anything you can to spread blood and fire in the den of the great Satan. Across the world, we, your warriors, are attacking their embassies, their military bases, and their industries. This day shall let the hated crusaders know their time is limited, and that as the sword of Islam is raised by united faith, soon our blessed black flag will fly forever over them, and that their own children will one day shout with us, Allah Akbar, this holy sword shall not return to its sheath until victory is won and the crusaders have bowed to Allah. There is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. Peace be upon him. When the announcement ended, everyone in the room shouted, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, until they were hoarse. Baruch, loop that and play it as long as we have radio stations, Abdel ordered as he wiped tears from his eyes. Let the unbelievers know that they face a united people on a mission from God. Until they were knocked off the air, every radio station throughout the ISIS territories and the radio and TV networks of Al Jazeera also kept replaying the announcement. In the lead Humvee of the 13th Armored Brigade of the West Virginia National Guard, Colonel Johnson wasn't listening to any radio broadcast as he and his men unloaded their tanks and began planning their attack in Walter Reed Medical Center. The convoy had left I-270 in Bethesda, Maryland, taking Old Georgetown Road down to Georgetown Square. They moved through the large shopping area and began assembling the brigade on the large open grounds of Walter Johnson High School. Colonel Johnson figured it was far enough away from Walter Reed to avoid any spotters or snipers 
the enemy may have deployed. Setting up his headquarters in the gymnasium of the high school, the colonel soon had a communications hub and the command and control officers of his staff around him as the men outside readied for battle. In the midst of all the controlled chaos of military professionals setting up a command center, Lieutenant Colonel Larson asked, what about the hostages? How can we stage a full-scale assault knowing they have thousands of hostages in there with them? Listen up, everyone. We can't let consideration for hostages slow us down or make us ease up in our duty. We have to take back this facility. We have to clear those terrorists out of Washington, and we need to do it as quickly as possible. That'll be the most humane thing we can do for our hostages. Is clear, everyone clear on that? Yes, sir, was the only answer heard from the assembled officers. Johnson had been right that they were far enough out to avoid any spotters or snipers, but they weren't far enough out to avoid the Apache Shaloub had ordered to fly cap. As soon as the lone Apache reported there was American armor massing a few miles away, Shaloub ordered the other Apaches into the air to attack and to serve as airborne artillery spotters. Only about three quarters of the Abrams were unloaded when the first Hellfire missile slammed into two semis carrying more tanks that were just entering the high school grounds. The explosions were deafening. Immediately, the already unloaded and manned Abrams using radar searched for the Abrams Inside a dozen tanks, gunners reported, Target acquired! Fire! ordered the commanders in every tank. The big 105-millimeter guns barked, the tanks rocked, and instantly there were three flashes as the enemy Apaches exploded. The one remaining ISIS chopper turned and headed back to Walter Reed, followed by four National Guard Apaches. Before the commandeered chopper could get more than a few blocks, it was a burning piece of wreckage falling from the sky. At the same time, shells from ISIS Abrams and their self-prepared howitzers began to explode all around the school. Some of them landed in the football field. Some hit the shopping mall, and some exploded in houses around the perimeter of the school. Watching the devastation out a huge window on the eastern wall of the gymnasium, Colonel Johnson thought, I'm sure glad those guys don't have GPS. Unfortunately, they aren't so lucky. Bubba, have every piece of ordnance we have coordinate with target tracking and return fire, Johnson said over his shoulder. Yes, sir, snapped Sergeant Hanks. Less than a moment after Hanks spoke the order into the headset, looked to his ear, and almost mind-numbing thunder announced that the order had been followed. Within seconds, high-explosive and incendiary rounds began landing with pinpoint precision all around the per perimeter of Walter Reed. When the ISIS gunners fired back with their Abrams and self-propelled guns, they learned what it meant to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a highly trained and battle-hardened American armored brigade. It wasn't like fighting the Iraqi army that melted away and left their weapons and vehicles as they ran. It wasn't like shelling the Pashkamir Kurdish army that had all the will in the world to fight but lacked the weapons. No, it wasn't like that at all. While the rounds from the enemy weapons continued to fall ineffectively, but with great devastation on the surrounding neighborhood. The Americans used their extremely efficient and accurate return fire capabilities to zero in on the enemy positions. And within moments, the enemy shells exploding there were American rounds landing on their positions. Two volleys were all the ISIS weapons got off before their men were either dead or staggering around bewildered, wounded, or dying in the flaming wreckage of their once formidable arsenal. The buildings of the Walter Reed 
complex shook and reverberated with the explosions of the incoming ordnance and from the secondary explosions from the targeted Abrams and howitzers. The fire and smoke quickly made large portions of the complex unlivable death trap. Sprinklers and severed water lines did little to quench the flames, driven by fuel and other chemicals used in the massive weapons. The crackling yellows and oranges of flames and the billowing suffocation of the toxic smoke was a fitting addition to the hell that was playing out inside Walter Reed as it was in all four of the occupied hospitals. It wasn't that the warriors of the Caliphate were more inhumane in character than others. After the horrors of the 20th century, adhering to or following the Geneva Convention with its supposedly Marquis of Queensbury type gentlemanly war seemed quaint. In the 21st century, the barbarism of past appeared destined to foreshadow the future. Even with this in mind, the war crimes committed by the ISIS warriors during the 20th 16 invasion seemed in retrospect to be over the top. The key to understanding them was to understand one of the primary reasons for the invasion to begin with, theology. Most non-Muslims know that the followers of Islam believe in and try to live by the Quran. Most do not know that just below the Quran in sanctity is the Hadith, or the collected oral sayings of the Prophet. It is in these sayings that are found the basis for Islamic eschatology, the theology of the end time. This theology is believed by both Sunni and Shia, although there are some minor differences. Both believe that the end times will be ushered in by a great battle between two Islamic armies in the city of Dira on the outskirts of Damascus. They believe this battle will culminate with the intervention of armies of unbelievers from the north and the west converging on Dira. There, in one cataclysmic battle, the true believers of Muhammad believe they will be victorious and the glorious reign of the Mahdi, the prophesied redeemer of Islam, who will rule before the day of judgment and will rid the world of evil will begin. With this in mind, many of the atrocities they had perpetrated, such as burning people alive, mass beheadings, beheading Americans, and destroying world heritage sites, were done to provoke America into joining the Russians in Syria. Their goal was to draw the unbelievers from the north and the west to Dara for the great battle. The Russians had taken the bait, but the Americans, dedicated as they were to leading from behind, had not. From day one, Caliph Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi had plotted and planned to bring war to America. When the unbelievable opportunity of the Obanya administration's open-door policy was combined with the collapse of the southern border and with the millions of Islamic refugees from all over the world, like a fifth column, ISIS was ready to strike. As massive and as destructive as the assault on Washington was, the Caliph wanted to make sure it would provoke the response he was looking for. So he commanded his forces to not only rain death and destruction of war upon America, but to commit acts of brutality and senseless violence specifically chosen to infuriate and provoke. In accordance with these orders, barrages had been directed at Arlington National Cemetery, at such sacred places as the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, and the Smithsonian. And then there were the occupied areas, the four great Washington hospitals, and the areas within the four towns. Here they sought to humiliate America by systematically raping women and killing innocents and non-combatants. 
The women captives who had been rounded up in Rockville sat huddled on the floor of the massive gymnasium with the many women who had been rounded up in the hospital, candy stripers, volunteers, nurses, and doctors. They all sat huddled together while guards in fatigues with AR-15s and M-16s walked the walls or stood in small knots talking and smoking cigarettes. The women were terrified. It had soon become obvious what was going on. Right after they had been herded into the room, a few women tried to argue or resist. They were promptly shot in the head and their bodies lay scattered about the room bleeding. The rest of the women held their peace and cowered on the floor. Then shortly after they had arrived, the guards started grabbing women and dragging them out of the room. If they resisted too much, they were killed. Since there was always at least two men grabbing each woman, they couldn't struggle enough to get away no matter what they did. Some, especially the young and good-looking, instead of being shot when they struggled, were hit with a rifle butt from behind, knocked unconscious, and dragged out like a sack of potatoes. It wasn't long before the first women came back from being dragged away. Some were naked, clutching their clothing. Others were partially clothed. All were weeping, and the word spread like news of the plague like through the assembled women. They were all being raped, crying and moaning from the terrified women added to the horror as several groups of guards from every side of the room kept walking through the tightly packed crowd, grabbing a woman here and another there. In a small group near the center of the room sat Mary Harrington from Rockville. She didn't know for sure if her beloved Mike was dead, but from the fact that these guards were wearing fatigues with patches for the 364th Armored Brigade from Rockville Armory, where Mike was the night watchman, certainly made her think he probably was. No matter how that shattered her heart, no matter how much she knew she would that she knew that would be the end of her life, she too did not have any time to think about it. Like the other woman from Rockville, she had been kidnapped from her home by these guards, forced onto a bus and transported here. Once in the gymnasium, she had located her best friend Sue Cummings, Jean, her daughter-in-law. Ashley, her daughter, and even Marcia Harrington, her seven-year-old granddaughter. Jean had a big bruise on the left side of her face. Sue had a cut on her leg that Mary had bandaged with a strip torn from her nightgown. Like all the women in the room, these Rockville women tried to be as inconspicuous as possible, keeping their faces on the floor and not daring to look up, afraid that they would attract attention to themselves and be the next victim dragged out of the room. The crashes from outgoing and incoming fire, the shuttering of the building itself as rounds from the National Guard found their mark, the whiffs of smoke, and the sobbing and moaning of the women all contributed to make this as close as anyone would ever want to get to hell on earth. The stories of what was going on were whispered from woman to woman without raising their heads or looking at who was speaking. Little Marcia was crying uncontrollably, even though her mother, Jean, tried her best to muffle the sounds with her hands so as not to bring any attention to their little group. As terrified as they were, their fears rose beyond fever pitch when one of the groups of guards came over to their location and grabbed a woman right next to Mary. As they started to drag her away, she yelled, You'll have to kill me for and a bullet smashed into the back of her head. They just dropped her right there and then grabbed another young girl who was crying and shrieking, Mom! Mom! A woman next to her started to get up and was shot in the head, collapsing into a pool of blood and brains spreading quickly across the floor. One of the men slapped a young girl. She couldn't have been more than 12, so hard that blood flew in several directions, and she slumped in their arms as they dragged her away. Most of the women were brought back, just laid weeping where they were dropped, but some men managed to crawl back to their little groups. 
One such victim made her way to a group close enough to Mary's group for them to hear what she was saying. They made me strip off all my clothes while they stood around me laughing and smoking cigarettes. Few of them burned me with their cigarettes. They handcuffed me hand and foot to a hospital bed. Then they raped me. I don't know how many. They just kept coming. I blacked out. Then when I was pulled out of the bed, they told me to get dressed, but I couldn't. So they dragged me back here naked. When they dropped me on the floor over there, they dumped my clothes on top of me. Mostly they spoke to each other in Arabic, but many of them kept calling me whore and slut. I just want to die. I just want to die, the woman moaned. Hearing this terrible tale made the Rockville woman shudder and made Marcia cry even harder. A few moments later, the woman who had been talking jumped up, started running and jumping over people towards the guards yelling, I'll kill you, bastard! until a burst of fire killed her as well as several other women who were around her. Dead and dying from that incident lay in a tangled heap not 30 feet from Mary as she huddled on the floor praying. About 20 minutes later, one of the groups of guards came and jerked little Marcia to her feet. Immediately, her mother, Jean, leaped up to defend her and was shot in the face. Mary grabbed the leg of one of the guards, screaming, No, no, until she was clubbed in the back of the head with a rifle butt. One of the guards hit Marcia in the stomach so hard with the butt of his rifle that she doubled up and vomited all over his shoes. They dragged her out. That was the last Mary ever saw of her granddaughter. Such was the horror of what was later described as the ISIS rape rooms. Replicated in all four locations, this war crime set the blood of every American ablaze just as it was designed to do. Thank you, Robert, for reading that to us. It's a great, great book. I know I enjoy it. And as Robert said, you can purchase the books by going to Amazon.com and uh, typing in America's Trojan War and, and Dr. Robert Owens in the search line. And you can also contact us if you would want to you have suggestions for us for the program or just need to talk to us or want to book us or schedule us to be at an event or at, I don't know, your church or whatever. So um, you can find that information at itooktherightturn.com. Yeah. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.